Bienvenidos, everyone. This is Que Onda. I'm Dr. Mari Castañeda, and I am here uh, interviewing folks from the community and from the five colleges and from the region about what are some of the issues of the day and um, what are the kind of uh, concepts and issues that folks are grappling with, uh, particularly in higher education. And today I have with me a very good friend, uh, Dr. Vanessa Rosa, who is Associate Professor of Critical Race and Political Economy in Latinx Studies and also co-chair of the Department of Critical Race and Political Economy at Mount Holyoke College. So I'm so excited that she's here today and we're going to be talking about her book, Precarious Constructions, Race, Class, and Urban Vi Revitalization in Toronto that was just recently published last year. Um, but so first of all, welcome. And I'm so glad you're here, Vanessa. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, uh, first, before we jump into talking about your book, I wanted to ask, first of all, how did you become a professor? How did you come to higher education, uh, to the academy, uh, and then also ultimately to Mount Holyoke College? Because uh, I, I just feel like it's so important to share those stories of how do we come to these spaces, given that there's so few of us in higher education as well, as professors, as doctors, you know, with PhDs mm -hmm. and so forth. Thanks for that, Mari. Um, it's a long story, as you can imagine. Um, when I actually, I'm a first-generation college student. Um, my parents did not go to college. My dad actually got his GED in prison. And my mom took a few credits um, at a community college. Um, but I think it's important to name that as a first gen student, that the path was not straightforward or easy. And, you know, so many I think of our colleagues often are following in the footsteps of their parents or other members of their community where it's very familiar to them. And that certainly was not the case um, in my own experience. Um, although both of my parents, I think, were deep educators mm -hmm. and loved the idea of learning and really instilled that. Um, in myself and my brothers, um, who are also both educators. Um, and so when I was going to, I went to college, I did an undergrad in political science at the University of Ottawa. And I imagined myself, or I imagined that I wanted to be a diplomat um, <clears throat> uh, and travel and live in different places. Um, however, one of the things that I encountered along the way and really found in college is that learning didn't come easy for me. Um, I really struggled in school um, and was kind of a straight C student. Mm. <laughs> um, and I just, yeah, it was hard. College was really, really hard for me. Um, and it wasn't until I kind of started reading women of color feminist thought mm -hmm. um, and texts that really resonated with my own experience that I really kind of shifted something happened I think the you know we describe them I think as teachers is like an aha moment and that certainly was the case for me I had two really amazing professors Dr. Paul Surrett and Dr. Catherine mm -hmm. Trevenin in my undergraduate degree um, in studies who um, really fostered that in me and that type of curiosity around the texts, again, that resonated with my own experiences. And so through that process and through their mentorship, frankly, I decided to apply to graduate school. And so I applied to graduate school and I did a master's in the sociology of education mm. um, at the University of Toronto. And then I went on to do my PhD at York University, also in Toronto. So all of my studies were done in Canada, which I think is also a little bit rare mm. um, and maybe different from the context that we're, we're in here in Western Massachusetts. Um, and so I was did my doctorate because I loved my project, which we'll talk about today. So I won't <laughs> say too much about my project right now, but that really was what kind of carried me through is this desire for ideas 
a real belief in change and a real belief in justice and thinking about housing justice, which again, I'll, I'll come to in my later comments. Um, but one thing that I found in my PhD program, like I had found earlier in my studies, is that the classroom was not a friendly place for me. Mm -hmm. um, and I felt very excluded for a whole variety of reasons and had a kind of a hard time finding my place um, because I really was, I don't think, a kind of typical PhD or doctoral student. And so um, towards the end of my studies, it just became clear to me that the academy was not a place for me. And so uh, just a year before I finished, I kind of decided I, I don't want to go on. Um, I'll finish, <laughs> barely. <laughs> I think I crawled to the finish line of my um, doctorate, finishing my dissertation and um, 10 years ago this year, and um, decided that I was going to go into the private sector. And so I did that, um, which is a really a strange path, I think, for especially a sociologist. Um, my PhD is in sociology. So I had worked for a few years as a consultant and kind of not-for-profit work. I worked for a major foundation, which I loved. I like giving away other people's money <laughs> to organizations that are doing really transformative economic and social justice work. Mm. Um, and um, moving into the private sector, I felt like I really brought some of those skills. And I think one of the reasons in that space or why why I stepped away from the academy is I never felt like I could be my full self mm -hmm. like I wanted to bring my full self that's just who I am as a human you're gonna get all of me um, and I couldn't do that in the academy and it's not that I could do that in the private sector but that I had a little bit more time and kind of freedom to figure out where I was headed next in my own career um, and it certainly wasn't the private sector. <laughs> I learned that fast as well. Um, but it was really a period of exploration for me that time after my PhD and before coming to Mount Holyoke. Now, you asked, how did I end up at Mount Holyoke? Mm -hmm. um, which is kind of a funny story. I had applied to a few jobs and postdocs in my last year of grad school and didn't land anything, which was fine. I think that's kind of common. Um, and so then when I decided to step away, I wasn't really thinking about the academy at all. One thing I was thinking about, though, was teaching. Mm -hmm. I love being in the classroom. And so even while I was working in the private sector, I taught um, several classes, um, either a night class or some online classes, because I just love working with students. So that was kind of always a draw and a connection for me is the mm -hmm. work in the classroom. Mm -hmm. That I found transformative. Um, but not a lot of institutions value teaching. And so again, it was a kind of a trade-off and can I be my whole self and like my real passions and what I believe in. Which is so odd that they don't in some cases because that's what the institutions are made up of, students. Mm -hmm. Students, you know, that's our so, whole purpose. Yeah. Our whole, I always say that as like a center in my own teaching and career is when I wake up in the morning, if I remember feeling a lull or what am I doing, I'm like, what am I doing? I'm here for the students. I'm here to learn alongside them and to think about better worlds. And the best place to do that is the classroom. Mm -hmm. Bell Hook said that the most radical place in the academy is the classroom. Absolutely. And I believe that. Mm -hmm. I believe that. Um, but back to in terms of the journey and thinking about teaching and higher ed and how I ended up here right now in Western Massachusetts, I had one postdoc application um, that a friend of mine, or a friend and a sibling, <laughs> said to me, you should submit that one more time. So I'm working in the private sector. It's September 2014. I'm just finishing up my PhD. I have no energy or desire to kind of write a new application for something. And so I submitted it to the Consortium for Faculty Diversity. 
which is a postdoctoral fellowship that tries to increase the presence of faculty of color in the liberal arts. Mm-hmm. And so this is in September 2014. I'm sitting at my desk in this very boring job in February, end of January 2015, and I get an email from Becky Packard at Mount Holyoke College mm-hmm. who says, hey, I have this application in front of me. Are you still interested? And I thought, Mount Holyoke College, where the heck is that? (laughs) And what application? Did I submit something? I didn't even remember. It was not on my radar Mm -hmm. at all. And I interviewed for the postdoc, actually on my birthday. And I, the next day or the next few days, I got an offer from Mount Holyoke. And a few months later, I arrived and I've never looked back. Oh, what a blessing. And and the thing that's been so great is having you part of the five colleges, Mm. which is so amazing for folks that don't, um, the five colleges made up of Mount Holyoke College, Smith College, Amherst College, Hampshire College, and the University of Massachusetts Amherst, which is where I'm a professor as well. And so the nice thing about the the five college community is the ability to bring Mm -hmm. together faculty and also staff and students to connect on not just in the classroom but also in community-based work and other various you know Mm -hmm. kind of opportunities and initiatives that that take place Uh, so thank goodness for that sibling (laughs) 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 who nudged you uh, to apply because I think that it's been I I know from knowing you for already many years uh, what a what a wonderful gift it's been to have Mm. you as part of the community you know as well Um, and I think that I love the fact that you also mentioned the reality that and the honesty of how hard it was, you know, both at the undergraduate level and the graduate level, because that's the piece that we don't really talk about mm-hmm. enough. Um, because oftentimes, if we're demonstrating that we're struggling or we're having a hard time, you know, there's also this fear that people are going to interpret that I shouldn't belong here. That's right. Or I don't have the capacity. That's right. And we're always hearing these stories and really a bias and narrative against students of color that oftentimes they're in the academy, they're in higher education, they're mm-hmm. in universities and colleges, um, but they don't have the skill set mm-hmm. and they don't have the ability to perform, which is absolutely untrue. But the other thing is that a lot of these institutions have to change the way they are engaging with us as students in the classroom. Um, and I know that you completely really think about that in the classroom space as an educator. Um, and I don't think universities entirely do that enough. I mean, there's certainly lots of wonderful people that are doing it, but there's so much more to be done yeah. you know, in that area. Uh, because even if we are struggling, that's okay. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing that is just so bizarre that it's okay to struggle, then step it up mm-hmm. as an educator mm-hmm. to really think and figure out how do we make sure the student then succeeds? Mm-hmm. You know, what is it that they need? How do we work together? And clearly you had professors that did that, mm-hmm. you know, right? because it was their encouragement and belief in you mm-hmm. that then led you to finish up at the BA level, continue the master's and mm-hmm. PhD, and then that now you're also doing that with your students, you know, as well. Yeah. One of the ways I often describe that or think about that in my own work with students and even colleagues is you meet people where they're at. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's our job to do that work. And it's hard to do that. Mm-hmm. Because it requires a particular set of, I think, or type of vulnerability that you bring into work with colleagues and particularly with students. You know, students are often really struggling. And that was my case. You know, I lost my dad in the last or the halfway through my senior year of college. And I lost my mom right before I finished my dissertation. And I almost didn't finish. Yeah. I almost didn't finish because I was going through all of these real struggles on the day to day. You know, there were things that people didn't know. I was driving back and forth to my hometown, which was three hours away, every week for almost two years to care for my mom Mm. and while writing my comprehensive exams, you know, and we weren't allowed to talk about that. 
we weren't allowed to talk about those real struggles and the hurdles. But I think that makes me a better teacher because I see my students as full humans. in the classroom and that they're bringing in all of this weight in the world you know there's a genocide going on they're mm -hmm. having these day-to-day -day struggles with their peers with their families and it's about seeing them and acknowledging this the classroom is a space of love and transformation mm -hmm. and if we want it to be that we have to up our game like you said as teachers and mm -hmm. bring a real empathy into learning and that's not you know this conversation around standards and rigor i'm like I don't know what that is. Like, I know, I know. that who, comes up a lot, especially as the dean of the honors college. You yeah, know? it's a way to exclude people, you know, though. That's yeah. not that language. It it because there's an embedded assumption that we're yeah. not doing that. Exactly. And I refuse that assumption. Absolutely. Don't like if you want to go there. Sure. Like we can have a theoretical debate or some deep. I'm that's fine. That doesn't mean that because I enter the classroom with with empathy that I'm not a rigorous like I have the absolute highest standards yep, and I think course. it brings out the most of my students they know mm -hmm. they got to come they better show up in class they better have they you know do the readings and often they've done the readings twice or three times because mm -hmm. they know that's my expectation so it's not about that empathy or meeting students where they're at it isn't about um, learning or how much work they're bringing in. I just don't look at it that way. Absolutely. That's not a framework I'm interested as yeah. a teacher in engagement. Well, and with. the thing is that they're there. Yeah, right. right, I, mean, right. I mean, how many, I mean, just in terms of how many folks are actually going to college, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Um, despite the, the attacks right now on higher education and all the things that are going on, I mean, just in general, the percentage is still not very high. Yeah. And so the fact that the students are already there, that's right. You know, already means that it demonstrates their own desire, commitment, yes. you know, engagement. Um, so they're here. Okay, so how do we make sure that we keep them here and get them to the finish line? That's right. You know, and as opposed to weeding them out, mm -hmm. you know, which I think yep. sometimes a lot of uh, folks and faculty and, and sometimes even staff think that's the way to go. But that really is not necessarily at all going to not only um, help that student, which is that's not going to happen like in that's terms right. of like the student really succeeding in the way they want to succeed and should be succeeding and want to succeed and we want to see them do that mm -hmm. but also how does that even impact or bring positive impact in their communities right campus communities the community at large you know we need some we need strong good leaders mm -hmm. that are empathetic mm -hmm. how do we begin that in the classroom that's right you know yep. so to demonstrate that yeah uh, and then both leaders and researchers and scholars mm -hmm. that are really thinking these ideas out and are curious and trying to impact them mm -hmm. you know as well yeah. which is i'm so glad that you're at mount holyoke and so glad that you're in the classroom because i know that your students do experience a transformation there having met some students um, I know that your your space um, in the classroom itself is something that students really feel loved and heard, oh. and they 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 really feel like they belong. Um, so I'm so glad that that you've been there, and that you continue because you know you're going to be there for a long time, right? right? <laughs> I, I am. I'm not going <laughs> oh anywhere. God, I'm, exactly. I'm happy. It's a good because it's a place that lets me do that. Yes. I don't, again, I don't think every place lets you do that, but it lets me do that. Well, that's the thing. And I that's, feel supported, and that's the thing that I mean. Just talking about you know the the few numbers of Latinas in particular that are professors in higher education and the academy 
when institutions exactly let us do what we need mm. to do, when they allow us to teach the way we need to teach, do the research that we want to do and the way we want to do it, engage with communities, it makes us feel not only invested in the spaces that we're you know, in, in our students, but then we feel like, yes, I want to stay. Yeah. And I want to be here and I want to give back and contribute because I feel valued and I feel seen and I want to continue doing that great work here. I mean, I feel like that's also been one of the big reasons I've also stayed at UMass so long because I feel that same way that I feel supported and I feel encouraged that allows me to do the things that I need to do in the way that feel best for me mm -hmm. in the way that I want to do them mm -hmm. um, and it's wonderful to hear that that's exactly the case for you too it is uh, because if more institutions did that actually I think we would have a higher rate of more folks of color more Latinas staying in the academy staying in higher education which a lot of times folks are leaving and saying mm -hmm. this place is not for me like the moment that you were like I'm not sure if I can stay mm -hmm. you know and what a loss that would have been you know if that really ultimately would have happened but I think if more institutions did that um, I actually think that we would have more diversity and more a feeling of community that oftentimes sometimes they're not there and not, yeah. not the case every institution but in in many cases folks didn't feel like I wish I could feel that I really feel valued here. Mm -hmm. well. well, one of the reasons I'm still here is because of you. I so you. <laughs> when you think about, though, being here and what it means, part of that is mentorship and care. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, you have hundreds of students or have had in, mm -hmm. in any given semester, and yet you take your time out to mentor and care for other faculty of color and particularly Latinas in this, not just here, I know that's all over the country. And so I think that yes, should be yes. named mm -hmm. that part of what makes it livable and not just livable like thriving because mm. I feel I do feel that I'm thriving mm -hmm. here and in this space but that's because of I community <laughs> yeah that's because of community yeah. you know it's because of mentors like you and people who have pa not only paved the way but like open up space and continue to curate that for the rest of us I think mm. that that's something you know we do that for our students but we don't often talk about it as colleagues of yeah. that type of love and care that goes mm. into making the academy a real space of transformation yeah well thank you so much Vanessa I mean it, it really does make a difference for us feeling that we want to stay and, mm -hmm. and be in community with each other and it's true that it's oftentimes not named um, and not always you know captured in our CVs mm -hmm. and our you know whatever annual faculty reports like in and in some ways those things are the invisible pieces but it's also the pieces I also give you so much life yeah right and the, and they make you thrive mm -hmm. um, and in some ways I do kind of like the fact that it's not always entirely seen um, maybe by the institution in some ways because I mean I do want it to be acknowledged and valued but at the same time I also like to keep it for myself yeah in the sense that this is a, a part of the world that is for us that mm -hmm. we get to support each other and and it's really wonderful to have that space mm -hmm. um, so thank you so much for sharing because I, I just think it's important for people to hear that story yeah you know of how we come to these spaces uh, because they're not easy to get here no. and and not easy always to stay and mm -hmm. so what is it that makes a difference in our ability to continue staying and continue thriving, mm -hmm. you know, as well? So your book, I'm so, so excited. I've loved reading your book. Um, and I want you to talk about, and I know you already mentioned a little bit about the project that you were doing when you were in graduate school and how um, not just the curiosity, but the inspiration that you mm -hmm. felt and you wanted to do the study and then continued on for the PhD. Um, but what was it about this particular project that said, like, I got to examine this. I got to mm -hmm. look at this. There's something going on here that needs to be documented, written about, analyzed, examined, uh, and really 
put in as something that needs to be part of the the record mm -hmm. you know of what's going on in this community sure i'll start by maybe telling two stories if that's mm -hmm. okay so the first story that i often tell is so my my mom was from toronto oh i didn't know that yeah oh, okay. she was actually grew up on the border of one of the neighborhoods that i write about so she she didn't live in the public housing project but she lived in subsidized housing a block like on the next block over okay my dad grew up in harlem in public housing and one of my last trips to New York City with my dad before he passed away, we um, were actually, we picked up my grandmother who was uh, in her 90s. Uh, she lived in Queens at the time. And my dad wanted to take us on a tour of the old neighborhood. Mm. And so we jumped in the car and we drove um, through Harlem. And he, it was interesting. I had never, as an adult, I think, uh, experienced this part of my dad. And this like, I mean, he was always a storyteller, but his, his, uh, the way he narrated the inequality of block to block. So he would kind of point out, and this is just at a moment where I am at the same time reading Women of Color Feminist Thought and all of these amazing kind of theorists and books around inequality. And then I have my dad mapping his kind of personal experience onto that and mm. describing this visually uh, in the urban landscape. I was like, oh, this is cool. Like that is not inequality is not cool. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but the idea that we can see this spatially is fascinating to me. Mm -hmm. And here I'm, you know, 21 years old and thinking, oh, this is really interesting. Um, and so when I went on to do my master's, I actually my master's was kind of a a backdrop to this project, um, which was a, around the, I called it the racial geography of Toronto's Regent Park, which mm. is the oldest housing project in Toronto. And at the time that I was writing that, um, uh, just about a year before the city council had passed um, uh, uh, legislation that would then allow for the redevelopment of this public housing project. So I was thinking more historical at the time. And then now there's this kind of contemporary thing happening mm -hmm. around the redevelopment of this very old, um, underfunded um, housing project in Toronto. So I turned my uh, doctoral work towards that, which mm -hmm. is the foundation of this book. Mm -hmm. And so I said I would tell two stories. So my second story, I thought I'd start by talking about um, a woman that I met in Toronto who lived in Regent Park for many years, and her name was Chandra. And Chandra worked at the Community Health Center. And I met Chandra because at the time I was working at a women's literacy center in Regent Park. Um, and through that, I was introduced to a whole bunch of people in the community. And Chandra just really stands out to me. She was very active in the community, a community organizer, um, loved her neighborhood. She, I mean, it was really who she was and was quite distraught about the revitalization process. Mm. She believed in better housing. She wanted better housing um, in Regent Park. But she was concerned because in the initial years of the redevelopment, some things that she saw um, were resembled gentrification mm -hmm. and gentrification as being this process where I mean, there's many stages and different types of gentrification. But in this case was this was thinking about one a mercedes-benz factory was put in like right across the highway from the housing project and so she kind of identified all of these little what she thought of signs of gentrification mm -hmm. and with this redevelopment effort one a couple things that she said were you know people were um they put in a new coffee shop that was uh, tim hortons which is a really well-known canadian mm -hmm. um coffee shop uh chain mm -hmm. and that residents in the community weren't welcomed there in the same way and were told that they just couldn't sit and kind of hang out in the coffee shop 
um, in the same way that other and some of the new um, middle class residents, because it was going through this process of redevelopment, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, and so she was really concerned that the the redevelopment of the neighborhood was having uneven impacts and was negatively impacting the previous residents. Another thing that she told me that will just stick with me forever <laughs> is she said, our community didn't need to be fixed. Mm. Our community needed to mm. be resourced. Mm -hmm. And that was just such a powerful mm -hmm. statement because I think it will speak to what I'll get to, especially when we come to the local context, is so often when we think about housing and housing inequality, we think about tearing down old buildings or tearing down housing that might be outdated, building new housing, but also bringing in new people. Mm -hmm. And the new people is often a kind of a code word for the middle class and what was actually needed in the in the case that kind of Chandra was trying to speak to was we need resources in this community because we historically have been kind of cut off from access to these resources mm -hmm. and and I just found that to be so kind of powerful and that's kind of what really and you note that it's a thriving community right? yeah it has a lot of assets already so many mm -hmm. so many people you know, many of the people that I talked to um, described the public housing project as being, a, yeah, a really thriving space, as feeling safe there, as feeling like they knew their neighbors, they could count on their neighbors. Mm -hmm. And so through the redevelopment process, what happened was they brought in private developers. So it was a public-private partnership. And the idea was that they would tear down the, the public housing oh, and wow. rebuild mm -hmm. mixed income, mixed tenure housing. So there would be private market units alongside public housing units and subsidized units. Um, however, what became very clear in the process is that the funding model <laughs> hadn't been quite teased out. So they ended up really diluting the population of low income folks and folks who needed subsidized housing and really increasing the rate of those um, middle income uh, people who were moving into the neighborhood and who were buying condos. Mm -hmm. So really, residents had kind of felt, and not all of them, I should say, not all of them, many of them, um, like this was an example of gentrification. And so in the book, I kind of work through um, that story, what it means for people. And I actually look at two housing projects. So I've only talked about Regent Park, but I also look at a neighborhood called Lawrence Heights, mm -hmm. which is a public housing project in Toronto, as well. And so I kind of map out what the planning process was, how people experience it on the ground. And the kind of, I think one of the keys to the book is the underlying assumptions that were made about both neighborhoods and the unintended consequences mm -hmm. of the redevelopment. The unintended consequences that eventually occurred. That's right. Yeah. And so what were some of those? Well, I think it was in terms of people's yeah experiences of um, feeling like they were bringing in these middle income folks and that that was going to change the actual social fabric of the neighborhood. So I think that's unintended because the idea is, is that the introduction of middle income peoples and this is a really problematic kind of assumption. And there's, you know, all of this, these debates and research around what is a mixed income housing model when you mm -hmm. are introducing um uh, a middle income kind of demographic into what was historically a public housing neighborhood. Well, mm -hmm. also the underlying assumption there is that there there needs to be a mix and that their um, middle income folks will influence the quote unquote behavior of low income folks. Mm -hmm. This is a really classist kind mm -hmm. of idea. One of them, uh, the folks that I worked with in this project said to me, they said, well, they're not trying to mix the up upper income neighborhoods. Mm which, mm. you know, it causes us to step back, say, what's the underlying assumption there? There you go. 
Um, and then some of the other unintended impacts were around safety and um, assumptions around criminalization in the neighborhood and who needs to be hyper kind of police, this idea that we should have, we need safer neighborhoods, which is true. I I'm support community safety and many of the residents did too, but they felt like as a result of revitalization and this redevelopment process that in bringing in middle income folks that they would actually be have a tendency to call the police more um, because these populations and the populations that were living in the public house, housing project were already kind of racialized in a particular way and stigmatized and criminalized. Mm -hmm. So that was one. And then the last unintended impact I'll say was around there was a process of community consultations, which is very popular in urban planning, to kind of call the community in, get their input around what they want their community to look like. And one of the things that I argue in the last chapter of the book is that that actually produced exclusion. So they called people in and that it didn't create the type of meaningful consultation that residents both expected and wanted. Mm -hmm. And so that it was this kind of orchestrated process um, that didn't actually take into account residents' ideas or implement them mm -hmm. in particular ways. And um, so that that actually produced, through this idea of participation, calling people in to participate, a mode of exclusion. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, it does sort of speak to that precarious constructions, right? That that precarity ends up being reproduced, uh, not addressed. That's right. Um, but then also that exclusion ends up being continuous, you know, in this process that is meant to look like everyone's there, but in reality, they're not, all the voices are not gonna be treated equally in that same way. And then what does that future look like then for these communities That's you know, right. as well? And, and so what do you see in terms of the, those takeaways from, from the book project that you did for the kind of work that you're doing here in Holyoke and in the broader Western Mass area, and that for other community members and other scholars could sort of think about, mm -hmm. you know, sort of sort of bring to that conversation as well, because it is a very different context. But at the same time, these a lot of the sort of general issues that you're addressing sound very familiar, mm -hmm. you know, as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Often when I tell the, the story, some of the stories that are in the book um, and about Regent Park and Lawrence Heights, local, folks local locally here in Holyoke say, I feel like you're talking about Holyoke mm -hmm. or you could be talking about Holyoke. Are mm -hmm. you talking about Holyoke? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's interesting because we're talking about two very yeah different contexts nationally, mm -hmm. um, like across borders, um, demographically very different. Um, but I think some of the takeaways are particularly around the role of the private sector. And mm -hmm. in a place like Holyoke, um, you know, all of this like seeking out or thinking about how to, quote unquote, redevelop the city, what the needs are in the city and um, certain attra like attractions, particularly the old mills, is being possible or key sites for redevelopment is something to be really mindful and careful mm -hmm. about because mm -hmm. of the impact on the people who live there. So a type of um, kind of like a green as green as in cannabis um, gentrification. There's another type of green gentrification, but mm -hmm. in this case of thinking about the seeking out Holyoke and the mills for cannabis um, mm -hmm. dispensaries. Mm -hmm. So I think that that type of like this corporate a attraction, the role of the private sector, we should be really mindful of mm -hmm. in the local context. Um, 
Uh, it also sounds like in terms of community voices and yeah. what is this looking like? That's what are right. these mills going to be look like? Uh, That's going right. to be used for. Um, how do we make sure that that precarious construction doesn't get reproduced in this context as well? How how, how does that right. how can that happen? That's right. You and know? I think you know we have really strong community organizations here who are trying to address these issues. So if the issue is that we have. Um, really old, outdated housing, inadequate housing, mm -hmm. substandard housing. Um, how do we address that? And who's seen as deserving of decent housing? Like if the bar is decent, I mean, this that's a pretty <laughs> low bar. We should mm -hmm. be seeking to create housing opportunities for all the, where people can thrive. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that's, I just, I don't think is often the framework um, is, for housing scholars and urban studies scholars, people often say housing is a human right, but I think we have to go past that to think we, you know, we housing is one of our basic human needs. And it's one of the ways that inequality is expressed kind of across the board mm -hmm. and uh, not just reproduced, but I think further entrenched is through housing. Mm -hmm. So certain people have access to not just housing, but wealth and home ownership. Um, and not that I'm saying that should be the goal, but that housing should be decommodified de mm -hmm. in in order to produce um, communities that have access to housing and creating an environment where they can thrive. And so in Holyoke, I think, you know, the Western Mass Tenants um, Union is so strong. Um, we have other community organizations, particularly, I mean, neighbor to neighbor, the work that they do is just absolutely transformative. Um, Nueva Esperanza, the kind of more historical, these older organizations have really worked so hard um, to create I think the context for um, addressing an affordable housing crisis mm -hmm. that we see is actually getting worse by the day. It's mm -hmm. not getting better, it's getting worse. And so- And then also connecting it to the climate changes that are happening oh, yes. are even I yes. mean, more you know, imperative in those conversations. I know that there's some UMass projects and so forth that are taking place, for instance, that are including community residents to sort of hear more about what can be done to mm -hmm. address this issue locally and even more regionally and so forth. But making sure that those community voices are there is very key because we can have all this sort of suggestions and so forth of what can be done but if it doesn't include the commuted voices in those conversations, you know, it, it really is not addressing what's the everyday lived experience no. of what that looks like. The everyday lived experience, and then on the, I think on the flip side of that is the structural causes. Yes. Like how did we get here in the first place? Mm -hmm. And when we hear from folks every, like in their everyday life and their everyday experiences, we can get to that. Mm -hmm. So I think that that was one thing that was missing in the planning frameworks um, in Toronto is that it wasn't addressing the actual structural causes. And if we don't address the historical and structural causes that got us here in the first place, we're going to end up falling short mm -hmm. in many ways. And I think that's what, what we see in both of these um, cases in Toronto. And I just hope in a place like Holyoke that the resident kind of organizations, yeah, Neighbor to Neighbor, Nueva, um, and other organizations, that they really do pave the way and create space. And it's because they center Mm -hmm. the experiences and voices of residents. I mean, they don't just center them, they follow them, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. One of the things, you know, in this type of work and working communities that I've learned is as an academic, I can offer a framework and some analysis, but really our job is to kind of get out of the way, you mm -hmm. know, because mm -hmm. we've caused more problems than we've solved. Our job is to think about solutions and transformation, but I think we're often part of the problem. Mm -hmm. And if we were better listeners and caretakers and um, knew how to kind of step back 
um, that bigger and greater transformation is actually possible. You mentioned about um, the structural, I mean, sort of the structural issues that sort of got us here in the first place. Mm -hmm. And what are those? Can you just point a couple of, so what are some of those things and, and what have you seen that can be done to address them or that, that, sure. that maybe that you saw afterwards in Toronto or even here in, if not in the Valley, just even across the U.S.? Sure. You know, like wh what have you seen that then, what is that addressing look like? Sure. I think that, you know, some of the structural causes when we think about housing inequality is really comes down to thinking about funding. So built and so built into the policy. So historically here in the U.S., some of the structural kind of causes would be as a result of redlining, as a result of the GI Bill, which benefited millions of people, but then also left millions of people out from having access to um, home ownership and even just adequate housing kind of conditions. So if we, and it was also very racialized. Very racialized. As well, yes. Yep. And so if we go to these kind of historical examples or even urban disinvestment, like looking at what that did to a city like Holyoke, these are kind of the structural causes. Mm -hmm. um, so then thinking about solutions, I think we look to fun, different funding opportunities and policy, but also to neighborhood organizations. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the things that lacking, and to go back to what Chandra said, our community didn't need to be fixed, our community needed to be resourced. And so where are those resources coming from? Mm -hmm. What would it look like to have it having a housing guarantee for all? Mm. If we can just imagine that. Mm. This is not that far-fetched of an idea. Mm -hmm. It is possible. It's about a kind of a uh, not just, I don't even want to say a political will, but a social will. Mm. Because I think there is an underlying assumption, again, to go back to that framing, that not everybody is deserving of housing. Mm -hmm. And that it, housing is a commodity and that it's just represents how hard one is working. And we just know that that's absolutely not the case. I know. And we're seeing, I mean, just across the U.S., so many challenges with housing. I mean, you're seeing in the news all the time all in the terms time. of folks unable to not just simply even purchase a home, but rent a home, you know, because the rents are skyrocketing and there isn't enough housing to actually, you know, house the many people that need it and so forth, families mm -hmm. and single individuals. I mean, all kinds of different you know, sort of home context in That's terms right. of how families are structured, but folks increasingly feeling the the weight and the pressure of how do I do this? Mm -hmm. You know, or how much of my salary or my pay is going towards like housing alone That's to pay right. for rent or the mortgage in whatever context they're in. And in many you know? cases for folks, um, they're paying more than 50% of their income towards housing mm -hmm. affordable for housing to be affordable they say the metric is usually around 30 percent. so if we take that it's almost twice that yeah like this is creating a dire context that's a structural problem that's a structural problem and something you know the multiple groups in holyoke have addressed have addressed um the ways that landlords are raising rent and really in uh problematic obviously problematic ways because what these are in many contexts, um, houses that don't have, I don't want to say aren't up to code, but aren't up to what we would think of as being having decent living standards. Mm -hmm. And so you have rents that are over $2,000 um, and people can't afford that. And the landlords are not maintaining the building. So mm -hmm. this is again where I say, if we have to look at the private se sector, one of my colleagues has this beautiful piece that came out last year, Preston Smith called um, mm -hmm. Race yeah. in the Housing Question. And part of what he says is we have to look to real estate. Like we have to look to the real estate industry because they are so central to the 
the problem mm-hmm. in terms of um, rising rents, um, the quality of housing, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Well, Vanessa, I know we're running out of time, and um, I, I'm so appreciative of you taking the time to you know come here to connect um, and also talk about your work and your journey and how you became a professor, a scholar, uh, because I think that it's so critical for us to have these spaces for these kinds of conversations. And I just want to know, again, her book, you know, so I encourage people to uh, to check it out because it really is not only so important for thinking what is happening in other communities and how is it relevant and important in the community that I'm located in, but also beautifully written as well. Mm-hmm. So I just like, I just love reading it. And I know you're going to be doing other work, you know, coming down the pike uh, in the next several years as well. Um, So I don't know if you want to share any final words before we wrap up, you know. I'm just so grateful. Thanks for the space. Thank you for inviting me. And I can't wait to do this again. I feel like we could talk all day. Absolutely. We need more time next time. (laughs) Well, thank you everyone for joining us and we'll be in touch again soon with Gaonda. Again, this is Dr. Mari Castaneda and my dear friend, Dr. Vanessa Rosa here today. And uh, thank you for joining us.